0: In the beginning, there was darkness and God created light. We saw His face illuminated and we knew Him, but then as sin entered our hearts, we turned from Him and plunged ourselves back into darkness. Our view of God grew dimmer and dimmer as we fled further away. We lost sight of His true character. The God we once saw shining bright in majesty became hidden from us by the lies we surrounded ourselves with. But even in the darkness, our God is in control. Even through our questioning, our God is ruler over creation and unchanging amidst our confusion. He is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, infinite in understanding. And we are blessed when we seek His face. Our love is deeper when we know the God of eternal love. Our worship is sweeter when we recognize the holiness of the author of life itself. When the lies and the mystery fall away We know the truth about God.
1: It's always intimidating to follow an intro video like that. It is so good, there's nowhere to go but downhill from here. So I'm glad you're here. You're dismissed. Uh, it's amazing what Chris puts together. That's, that's unbelievable. Anyway, but uh, hey, it is good to have you here. And in Skagit, so glad that you're with us today. We're excited for you. Just counting down the days so you go to two services, and what an exciting thing that is uh, for you guys. Those of you in Boca Raton at the Trinity Church of God and those watching online with the live stream, I found out today there's a group in Chico, California watching this this morning. So uh, welcome uh, from Chico. It's good to have some God in Chico. Um, because Chico State University has an incredible reputation not for godliness. So we're glad you're there. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking. Thanks for watching. Anyway, uh, as you know, if you've been around, we are embarking in our last week of our prayer and fasting emphasis, our 21 days of prayer and fasting, where we have intentionally said no to ourselves so that we could say yes to God, where we didn't just give up. But we gave up with the design and the intent of filling up with more of God and his presence and his word and prayer and worship. And to hear some of the stories that have been coming out of these last two weeks have been amazing. I hear some breakthroughs, this beautiful connection with the Father, great times of prayer, just wonderful, uh, the discipline of that. And so I want to continue to encourage you as we finish off these last five and a half days of those 21 days uh, to finish strong. I have also heard... For some of you that there's been some challenges and some difficulty and kind of breaking the fast before you wanted to and things like that and some temptations. And that's all part of denying ourselves. Let me tell you about a temptation that I faced in the first week of our 21 days. Uh, A friend of mine, I call him a friend, he's a former friend, Uh, he had been a part of our church um, and he'd come to the whole series on fasting. And then when we launched it that that first week, uh, he left and he went to Southern California. Well, later that week, uh, while he was in Southern California, he texted me this picture. Some of you know, this is from In-N-Out Burger. Some of you know, my core values are in this order. Jesus, family, In-N-Out Burger, Cornwall. So he texted text me this, and I don't even want to get into any discussions about five guys and Dick's Burgers and any lame excuse. in and out Burger just is the deal, okay? So he sends this double-double animal and the animal fries and all that, and, and so I texted him back. I said, you do know I'm fasting, right? He proceeded to send resend this picture three more times that day. <laughs> now, I'm a pastor. I'm trying to follow Jesus. Jesus says we're supposed to love our enemies. Bless those who curse us. And so I decided that I would try to be like Jesus, so I texted him a quote from our Lord Jesus Christ, and I simply text him, get thee behind me, Satan. Um, And and over the next couple days, he proceeded to text me pictures of desserts he was having, and and all this this crab boil he was at, this seafood boil and things. Finally, I texted him this verse out of Philippians, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame, their mind is on earthly things. And he texted me this verse, one man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man's faith is weak, eats only vegetables. <laughs> so I'm fasting from that friendship for the rest of my life. What I do want to say, though, is as we go into this last five and a half days, some of you kind of said, okay, I tried and it didn't work. I want to encourage you. Give yourself grace, let the past be the past, pick up, engage in this last five and a half days, not just of giving up, but more importantly, filling up, connecting with God, His Word, His presence, and uh, in worship with Him, and what a blessing that is for you and for us, and to honor God in that. I'm excited today because we start this brand new series that will uh, lead us right up to the resurrection uh, celebration on Easter for the next eight weeks. We're gonna be looking at this. It's called The Truth About God. A little over two uh, months ago, in the first week of of December, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that came out, and here's the title. Don't believe in God? Lie to your children. The alternative is to tell them they're simply going to die and turn to dust. It was a fascinating article. Um, fascinating article, and um, I, I loved. It. I, the, the reason I'm showing this has to do with the whole line to your children deal. But the article, just real quickly, um, ha, quoted statistics of how much better adjusted in life children who are ra- raised in a, in a religious setting with, with uh, spiritual disciplines and practices, in, in, in whether it be a synagogue or a church, would have just how much better they do with depression and anxiety and, and the ills of life and the temptations of drugs and alcohol and sex and all these kind of things. Anyway. The thing I thought fascinating was this idea that if you don't believe in God for the well-being of your children, lie to them. And I thought, okay, well that makes sense because if you don't believe in God, there's no basis for morality anyway. I mean, morality doesn't just evolve, right? So there is really no right and wrong if you don't believe in God or where does that come from? So lying to your children is not a problem. Go ahead and tell them all kinds of lies and don't feel bad about it because why would you? There is no God. You shouldn't feel bad about lying to your children unless you're a Christian like my mother did. When I was a child, my mom lied to me. I was a little boy in Louisiana, and I heard this music ringing throughout our neighborhood. And my mom said, oh, Bobby, it's the music man. Let's sit here and listen to his music. All the other children went out to talk to the music man, but we stayed on the porch and listened to the music man. Years later, I found out that wasn't the music man. That was the ice cream man. My mother lied to me, pray God's grace upon her. But we could lie to our children. And sometimes you might think, well, yeah, my parents lied to me about other things. They probably lied to me about God as well. You know, they lied to me about some weirdo that's got this fetish about teeth that fall out of kids' heads and gives money for them. I mean, that's just a weird thing. You know, rabbits that lay eggs. Come on, really, seriously. And a guy that breaks into everybody's house on the same night and no one seems concerned. And just along with all those lies, well, there's the God part as well. I don't want us to lie about God. I want us to know the truth about God. And God spoke through his prophet Jeremiah when he said this, the Lord said, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this. Now he pulls out these things that we value, things like strength and wealth and wisdom, things that we invest our time, our energies, our lives into. We admire this in other people. The, the strength of the youth, you know, the, the, the wealth of those who are, are rich and, and the wisdom of those who are learned. And, and we spend our lives going to school and, and reading books and learning from our mistakes so that we'll be wise. And, and we work out and we do exercises and we eat healthy and we see our doctors so that we'll be strong. And and, and, and we, we work and we earn and we invest and we save so that we will have wealth as well. And and we think these are so important. And through through Jeremiah, God's saying, yeah, those are there, but don't let those be the most important thing that consumes your life. Maybe there's something that's more important than that. If you're going to boast about something, it's not how strong you are, how wealthy, or how wise you are. Let him who boasts, boast about this. And he says, this is more important, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these, I delight, declares the Lord. You want to boast about something? you want to give your life and your energies and your efforts and your focus to something that's really important, then understand me and know me. Know the truth about me. Because a lot of times people think, well, God is, you know, he's detached and he's kind of cruel and he, he's unfair and he kind of gets this, this sick, perverse thrill about sending people to hell. God says, you don't know me. I'm not detached. I'm engaged in what's happening on earth. And what brings me the greatest delight is when I see there's kindness that's shown, and the right thing is done, and justice is served. Get to know me. And so what we are going to do is learn and grow in our understanding and the truth about God. Last fall, I mentioned that um, just in my own personal walk, I'd been kind of going through an old classic book, The Knowledge of God by A.W. Tozer, and as I was going through this book again last fall, it became the spark for what would become this series. And in fact, this is one of the resources that we're using uh, for this series. For some of you who want to go further than just what you get on the weekends and go a little deeper, I would highly recommend this book. Um, it's a thin book. It's pretty concise. It's not the only book on the attributes of God, but I think you can get it on Amazon for like $6.95. If you have a Kindle, you can get it for like a buck ninety-five. I will say this about this book. The chapters are short two to five pages long. But this book is not one that you just blaze right through. It's just kind of just, you can't, you know, put it down and just keep going. This book is one that you take sometimes a paragraph at a time, sometimes a line at a time. Um, there are some Christian books, and I'm not gonna uh, state authors, but when I read them, I feel like I've just eaten cotton candy. That was sweet, that was fun, it disappeared. I don't know what happened, I'm all sticky. This one, I think, is a lot more like Really good beef jerky. You have to chew on this one. But then you say, oh, that's tasty. That's some good stuff. And there are parts in this book where he'll just drop a line. And they're not bold. They're not highlighted. They're not set apart in boxes. They're just within the text. And you're like, whoa, wait, wait, wait. I got to stop. I got to chew on that line for a minute. I'm not sure. That, that disrupted my, my mental, spiritual, theological equilibrium. Let me give you a couple of those lines from the opening pages. He makes this statement. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that one stopped me in my track. And I thought, okay, really? Do I agree with that? Let me think this through. What comes to my mind when I think about God, that's my beliefs, my convictions, my understanding of God, which, yes, actually shapes and impacts every other part of my life. How my priorities and my, my actions and so, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, that's that the most important thing about me because it impacts everything else about me. And then he builds on that and he shows how it works in, the, in, a, in a negative way. The low view of God is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. I'm thinking, that's the source of things? And, and, and again, I begin to think about, well, if I have this low view of God or I don't trust him, I don't believe him, I'm not gonna follow his ways, I'm not gonna kinda submit to his will, I'm not gonna read his word, I'm not gonna have that as a part of my life, and thus, I will go my way, do my will, follow my own instincts, which will end me in a lot of messes with the consequences that come. So yeah, if I have a low view of God, then yeah, that's gonna cause a lot of problems in my life. And then the converse is true, he drops this line. The man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. Like, if I, if I really align myself, if I understand who God is, and I align myself with his directions of life, then, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to experience the life he created me to live. And there's some things I'm not even going to have to worry about because I followed his way. I mean, it's like, this, this, is, this is great. So as I was, I was reading this, and even just these kind of lines in the opening uh, chapter, I was, I was thinking, if this is accurate, if this is true then studying the truth about God will lead us to not just good theology, but good life. Not just some academic exercise where we we now have more answers, but it will transform our lives and the way that we live when we begin to understand and know the truth about God. And as I was thinking about all this, I was thinking, then that is the goal, not just to get smarter, just to know more about God, but to really be transformed by knowing who he is. Uh, The prophet Hosea wrote this, I love how it says it in the English Standard Version, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. And that's our goal in these next eight weeks that we would continue to press on, that we would chew, that we would think well and know the Lord. Now with that said, in this pursuit of knowing God and knowing the truth about God, we have to right up front acknowledge something that is obvious. It may not be obvious to you, but I'm gonna acknowledge something that we have to just own, and it's that as we pursue knowing the truth about God, every single one of us are handicapped in this pursuit, because every single one of us are capacity-challenged in our mind, in our thinking. If you'll let me use a word out of the normal context with which it is used, but is well, well within its true definition, that we all, in pursuing the knowledge of God, we all have an intellectual impotence about us. There's a limit of our capacity. There's a handicap that we have to face with this. Here's the good side of this, is that we face this and we have this beautiful conundrum. It's not altogether bad. It's beautiful, And, and here's the question. How could someone who is finite, like me, like you, like us, how could someone who is finite really grasp and understand the infinite? We don't have a capacity. How could those of us who are temporal, that's all of us, understand he who is eternal? How can we, in our limitations, truly grasp the unlimited God? That there's, there's just some things we're not going to get. As some of you were raised in church, and you may remember the old hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. The second line, In light, Inaccessible hid from our eyes most blessed most glorious the ancient of days almighty victorious thy great name we praise in light inaccessible hid from our eyes that there's some things that we can't even comprehend we can't even handle if god revealed them to us it would just evaporate us vaporize us so he says for your own protection there's some stuff i'm going to hold back so there is a limitation there is a capacity issue for all of us this isn't just us So don't feel like, oh, so we're in the remedial class. (laughs) Humanity is the remedial class. Job experienced this when his friend said to him, can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths of the grave. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. He's saying, Job, you, you you can't know all there is to know about God. Later in chapter 36, it says, how great is God? Beyond our understanding, the number of his years is past finding out. In Isaiah, it says that God's, uh, the, God's understanding is unfathomable. We cannot understand it. We can't grasp it. It's just beyond us. So somewhere along the way, we have to get to this point where we just accept the fact that God is transcendent. We can know more about him, but we can't know all about him. We just don't have that capacity. Theologians, I mean, men and women who love God and devote themselves to the study of him and and for years and, you know, great degrees and, and unimaginable amounts of knowledge will use words like this when talking about trying to understand God. They'll use words like this. Indescribable, incomprehensible, unsearchable, Unfathomable, which is just fun to say. Let's all say it together. Unfathomable, Skadget, come on, you got to do better. Let's all together. Unfathomable, ineffable, inscrutable, sum them all up. Inconceivable. <laughs> and when you begin to understand that, that, that God is beyond our understanding, it can be met with one of three responses. One of the responses is just a resignation of apathy. Well, if we can't know, then why even try? Let's not try, forget it, let's just go on with life. That is one response. Another response is a a frustrated futility that the more you search and the more you dig and and you just get frustrated. And the reality, the source of that one really is pride because the reason you're frustrated is because you believe that somehow you ought to be able to understand this and it's all about you, but you can be very frustrated in the futility. The third response is an enthusiastic, ecstatic exuberance about this great God of ours, and that was the response of the Apostle Paul when he's writing the letter to the church in Rome, and he's writing these incredible Truths about God's grace and His goodness and His life and what He's done. He stops in the middle of it and he's just overwhelmed with the goodness of God. He's overwhelmed with the truth about God and he writes this doxology in the middle of it and he just stops and says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. He says, This is amazing. This is incredible. I'm never ever going to get to the bottom of this. L- let me try to illustrate this way. Have you ever read a book, a novel, some book that just grabbed you? And the author, the way she or he wrote this thing, the way that they developed the characters, the way that they they just... In the picturesque language, you could see it, you could smell it, you could taste it. And the storyline, and it was intriguing, and the wisdom, and all the, all the research that went into it, and, and it was a page turn. You just couldn't wait to pick it up. You couldn't wait on your break, couldn't wait for lunch, couldn't wait to get home, and you just couldn't wait to get back into it. And you read it, and you can't put it down. And then about three quarters of the way through, you start getting sad because you realize this story is going to come to an end, and you have so enjoyed it. And so you start reading slower. Anyone ever experienced that? What Paul is saying here is that our God is this God of such beauty and depth that's page turner that I can't put down. And no matter how many pages I turn, no matter how many times I dig in, it will never come to an end. There will always be more. There will always be a greater depth. There will always be new understanding, a greater insight, and it never stops. Fanny Crosby, the great hymn writer, wrote this hymn called The Unsearchable Riches of Christ. And the refrain of that uh, goes, precious, more precious. Wealth that can never be told. Oh, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Precious, more precious than gold. I just get to continue to learn and grow and discover and never ever plumb the depths of the goodness of God. That ought to be our attitude going into a study about the truth of God. He is transcendent. He's beyond what we can understand. Evelyn Underhill said, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshiped. So rejoice in that fact that we can't understand it all. Francis Chan said, isn't it a comfort to know that the God we worship cannot be exaggerated? I love that. You just can't exaggerate him because however big you say he is, he's bigger. It's just an amazing thing. So with that we are going to dive into some of the attributes of God. And we're not going to do it extensively, exhaustively. In fact, some of it we're just going to kind of be able to scratch the surface because there is lifetimes, eons of wealth of knowledge about God that we're not even going to get to. But we're going to look at these attributes. So let's talk about, you know, what is an attribute? When we talk about God, an attribute is anything correctly ascribed to God, and in fact, it's revealed by God. Anything correctly ascribed to God, and that correctly is important because there's a lot of information and a lot of thoughts and a lot of beliefs that are not correct about God, and some of us have some of those, and hopefully maybe some of those will be cleared up. I have a very good friend, and he's on a spiritual journey, and, and he's made great steps, but sometimes we'll be talking, and, and he'll say something about God, and I'm like, where did you come up with that? Because it's got a little bit New Testament in it, got a little new age in it, a bunch of Oprah in it, some karma stuff. And you know, all this kind of put together. And I'm like, okay, that's not exactly right, but let's go with it and we'll work with you. And we need to have a correct understanding about the truth about God. And the correct understanding, of the truth about God is revealed by God. This isn't made up. We're not creating God in our image. That's where we get in trouble. It's to come back to the truth about God that he has revealed and to seek more. He said, seek me with your whole heart and you will find me. And so we are. All right, that was a very long introduction to my sermon. So I'll shorten my sermon. So in the remainder of our time today, uh, I do want us to to get into this. That's kind of the the why we're doing this and the what behind it all. Let's start into this, this truth about God. And today what I want to talk about in the last uh, little bit of our time together is this truth about God and about God alone. So in our time, I want to talk about only truth about God, truth that is only about God, and truth that is about God only. And that's why I've called this, this sermon, God Alone. And again, I'm just going to be scratching the surface, and there's part of it, even last night after I got done, I thought, boy, I don't know, I didn't have time to even go into that, I, I left that maybe hanging, so... Give me some grace. Maybe it'll open up some great depth of research on your own part and discussions with that. What I wanna do is I wanna take a, an experience that the Apostle Paul had. So if you have your Bible, or your tablet, your devices you wanna follow along, we're gonna be in Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, Paul does exactly what we are doing. Paul begins to tell the truth about God. This event happens in Athens and in Greece And Paul goes in there, and as he's coming in, uh, this Greece uh, has not yet heard the message of Jesus. Paul is struck, and he's disturbed in Athens about how many idols there are, and how many temples there are to pagan gods and goddesses, and how many shrines and all of this. And as he goes in, he's just struck by all that. Now remember, this is Greek. This is Greek mythology in the first century. And their belief and their understanding, if you've studied Greek mythology is that there were really primarily 12 gods and goddesses who resided on Mount Olympus, but would come down to these temples and these shrines and, and, and such. And these 12 gods and goddesses, they all had different spheres of influence in the world. The god of war, the god of the, the sea, the god of harvest and the weather and marriage and love and all these different, they had different spheres of, of influence or control. And, um, Gods like Zeus and and Apollo and Poseidon and Aphrodite and um, uh, Artemis. When we studied uh, Ephesians, you remember Artemis. Well, the patron goddess of Athens was Athena. Athens is named after the goddess Athena. And the jewel of Athens was on the Acropolis on this high point that they had this, this temple built and it was called, it's called the Parthenon, it's very familiar. You've, you've seen pictures of it, the Parthenon. This temple was built for Athena, their patron goddess. So Paul sees this, and there's all this pagan god worship and idol worship and stuff going on here, as well as around. As he comes into Athens, he begins to tell about Jesus to the God-fearing Jews and God-fearing uh, Greeks, and they're having these discussions, and in the marketplace, and then he gets into a discussion with some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. These are guys who are not uh, Jewish. They're not God-fearers. They're, they're uh, more into this pagan deal. And, and they're not understanding what he's talking about. He tells us of these things that you're speaking of. We've never heard such things. He's coming with this, this new talk about this Jesus, and he's dead, and he's alive again, and all this. Well, in Athens, there's a place called the Areopagus, also known as Mars Hill. It's a gathering place where all the philosophers, all the deep thinkers, all the religious leaders would gather, and they would just speak and talk and and converse and philosophize. Uh, We were there 12 years ago. This is is on Mars Hill, and it's right down uh, from from the Acropolis. We're on Mars Hill, and and here I am, speaking deep (laughs) truths to the group from Cornwall. As the sands of the hourglass, so are the days of our life. All we are is dust in the wind. Anyway, Paul's invited to come to one of these things. So they're talking, and they're like, we've never heard what he's talking about. And in, in essence, they sing you, some of you remember the old Dishwalla song, uh, Tell Me All Your Thoughts on God, Chasing Blue Cars. Tell me all your thoughts on God. They're basically saying, Paul, tell us all your thoughts on God. All right, that's a lot of backdrop. That's where we pick up. Acts chapter 17, verse 22. He's on Mars Hill. He's at the Areopagus, and this is what it says. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way. You are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription. To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. This is on the the one hand, absolutely creative on Paul's part. He says, let me take what you have and tell you about it. And it's unbelievably bold to come in and say, the one that none of you know about, let me tell you. And he comes in with the truth about God. He says, I want to tell you the truth. You just know him as the unknown God. I know him, and I want you to know him as well. Now remember, they're right in the shadow of this huge, amazing temple, and all of these idols are all around the town, and Mount Olympus, where all of the the gods and goddesses reside. And so he begins to tell them about this unknown God, the truth about God. He says this. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands." Now, what he's saying here flies right in the face of everything they're about. Because he's talking about this God who is over all creation, not just the sea, not just the weather, not just the harvest, not just war, but this is the God over all things. And he does not live in temples like that one up on the hill. God doesn't, are you kidding me? And Mount Olympus, God doesn't reside, God created Mount Olympus, and he's not gonna dwell in your little boxes no matter how impressive they are. Now, for us, as Americans, we read this, that he's the Lord over heaven and earth. And we just thank creation. That's what I think creation. For his audience, this had a much deeper meaning. And let me explain this in Greek mythology. There were the 12 gods and goddesses. They were descendants of the Titans. And the Titans were the descendants of the primordial deities, two of them, heaven and earth. You see the depth on this one. He's not just talking about God as God over creation. He says, your whole religious system, our God is the Lord over all of that. And what you see here is this beautiful thing about God who's beyond that God alone. God alone is self-existent, self-dependent, and self-sufficient. That God is like this. He doesn't find his source from the Titans. He doesn't find it from heaven and earth. He is over all that. And he is he's, he's bigger than whatever gods you have in mind. He's bigger than that. It's like when, when Moses encounters the burning bush and the presence of God is there speaking to him and giving him instructions. And Moses says, wait, 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 wait. Now, if they say, so who is this God that sent you? What am I supposed to tell them? And God's response is, tell them, I am that I am. I just am. I'm self-existent, I'm self-dependent, I'm self-sufficient, and no one else, no other god or goddess, no other deity is like our God, God alone. In a word, he is imminent. That all of creation, all of the world, all things are within him. Now this is different than pantheism. don't, Don't get mixed up on this. Pantheism would say, God is everything, and everything is God. That is not what what our God is. God is sovereign, and he is imminent that all things are within him. But it's not that speaker is God, and that tree is God. No, it's all within God. J.B. Phillips wrote a book years ago entitled, Your God is Too Small. And I think Paul, as he's standing on Mars Hill, is looking at these guys who spent their lives worshiping these gods and goddesses and the titans and all this, and he says, Your gods are way too small, way too small. This is why God would instruct his people in the Ten Commandments that you will have no other gods before me. Why? Because those gods aren't gods. You're shortchanging yourself. You're selling yourself short. You're you're, you're settling for something that isn't even close to the reality of our Jehovah, our Yahweh. That's why he would say, you will make no graven images of me, because nothing, no animal, no little figurine, no little statue contains who I am. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul would later write, it says, for by him... All things were created, created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or rulers or powers or, or authorities, all things were created by him and through him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, God alone and only God. Which leads us to verse 25. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. There's two pieces to this verse. One is this concept of need, and the other one is source and origin and and sustenance. So let's start off on on the need part. And this is one of those things where, again, a statement from Tozer's book, it just kind of stopped me in my tracks and I thought, I can't wait a second, I, I uh, I need to think about this for a minute. And its essence was this, is to God alone, Nothing is necessary. Only to God. Nothing is necessary. Need is a completely foreign concept to our God. Now for us, we have need, you have needs. Let me just tell you. You have a need for air, for oxygen. If you don't have air or oxygen, you're done. You have a need for water. You can go a couple days, three maybe, You don't have water. You have a need for water. You have a need for food. Not as much as most of us eat. That's what we've been learning these last couple of weeks that we can actually do with less. But you have a need for that. You have a need for a purpose. You have a need for hope. You have a need for love. Let me take you back to psychology 101. You remember studying Maslow's hierarchy of needs? That whole concept of, you know, these basic needs and then as you get these, you know, the the self-actualization on the top. All that good. The whole thing is... That we have needs. Sometimes you'll you'll talk about something, she's kind of needy, which is negative, right? All of us are kind of needy. We're all extremely needy. Not so God. To God alone, nothing is necessary. And let me just mess with you for a little bit here God does not need our worship. God does not need our money. God does not need our obedience. God does not need our surrender and our submission. God is worthy of all of that, but he does not need it. Like God's what? Some codependent deity with his low self image and a fragile ego with a touch of of bipolar. That he sits up in heaven and says, oh, it's Sunday. Oh, I hope they worship me today. I hope they like me. And if they don't, I'm going to send them to hell. (laughs) God is not like that. Can I tell you the truth? God is worthy of all of our worship. He doesn't need it. We do. We need to worship so that we get the right perspective about who he is and who we are. God doesn't need our money. He doesn't want our money to get us. He's not trying to get our money from us. He doesn't want our money to get us and own us and have that become our God in whom we trust. God doesn't need our obedience. He knows we need to be obedient because he set that up for the best life. He came to give us life. Do you see how that works? He doesn't need that. Take the sun, for instance. 93 million miles away and actually shining this morning. The sun, 333,000 times the mass of earth. If you had a big empty globe the size of the sun, 1.3 million earths could fit in it. Majesty, blazing for eons, power, energy, strength, light, you know, heat. If today we all became blind and became cave dwellers for the rest of our life, never ever saw the sun again, never ever felt its warmth, it would not diminish the magnitude and the glory and the power of the sun one iota. Likewise, if every one of us today became absolute atheists, never ever even acknowledging God, it would not change his perfection and his godness at all. My belief in God does not make him more God. And my doubt of God does not alter him at all. God doesn't have need, and this can only be said about God. And then he talked about this source and this origin that all of creation owes its origin to something or someone. God alone is outside of that category. That's why in Romans uh, 11, in that doxology, Paul writes, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Everything we have is a gift from God. The very fact that you can breathe right now and your lungs are functioning is a gift from God. The fact that your eyes can blink, your heart can beat, that you can digest food, that you can walk, all of that is, it's, life itself is a gift from God. To God alone, nothing is necessary. All right, we gotta keep moving on. Let's jump down to verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like God gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. And this one I I really don't have time to go into. Um, Maybe we'll circle back around to it later in the series. But God alone is like no thing and no one. Sometimes we say, well, what God is like, no, he's not. Well, What God is like, no, he's not. This is when we begin to create God in our image. God is not like anything that we can come up with because whatever we come up with was created by someone who is over and bigger and greater and transcends all of creation. When we sing that song, you have no rival, you have no equal, now and forever, God you reign. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory, yours is the name above all names. Isaiah would say that in Isaiah chapter 40, to whom will you compare me or who is my equal says says the Lord. Are you kidding? You think an idol is what I look like? You think you can represent me with stone, given even if it's marble or gold or silver? You think those created elements that I created, spoke into existence, actually represent me? The psalmist writes, who is like the Lord our God? The one who sits enthroned on high, transcendent over all things, in a category of one, who God alone, is imminent. All things are within him. God alone is self-existent, self-dependent, self-sufficient. To God alone, nothing is necessary. And God is not like anything or anyone. N.T. Wright, the great uh, New Testament uh, theologian, said this. When we begin to glimpse the reality of God, the natural reaction is to worship him. Not to have that reaction is a fairly sure sign that we haven't yet really understood who he is. You say, oh, I know God. Yeah, he's not that big of a deal. You don't know God. That's a very sophomoric type of an answer. It's really clear you don't have a clue what you're talking about because God is so much greater. All right, let's wrap this thing up. Go to verse 26. Paul says, from one man, he, talking about this unknown God, okay, For one man, he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them, the exact places where they should live. That God is involved not only in our world, but in our lives. And I want you to hear this. That our great God, who's transcendent and above all else, is so involved in your life. There is a reason that you are alive today and not years ago in a covered wagon. It's by God's design. There's a reason you are here and alive today and not 100 years from now. That's by God's design and purposes. And if you let me go a little bit farther, I believe there's a reason that you are sitting here listening to this sermon today because God brought you here because he wanted you to hear a little bit more about him and to know him. And he goes on and he says, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. I, I referenced that Dishwala song, tell me all your thoughts on God. The second line that says, and tell me, am I very far? Listen, I don't know how far you are from God, but I know how far God is from you. Because Paul ends it and he says, he is not far from each one of us. Do you see the beauty of this? that this God that we don't even have the capacity to understand, that we will never ever plumb the depths of who he is. We are not even capable of comprehending him in his fullness, in his glory, in his beauty, and he says, and I am right here for you. Seek me, reach out for me. So Cornwall Church, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord, that we would know and understand him Oliver Wendell Holmes said, a mind stretched by a new idea never ever goes back to its old dimension. And as we immerse ourselves in the attributes of God for these next seven or eight weeks, may our minds, our hearts, our soul, our faith, our walk be stretched to new dimensions and never go back to the way it was before, to know the truth about God.